Regency Capital Management and its representatives are not responsible for the accuracy or outcomes of anything discussed. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as personal investment, financial, legal, or tax advice. The ideas and investments discussed are for information and entertainment purposes only. We may be wrong or change our mind in the future on anything discussed. Do your own homework and consult your advisor. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Talk Exchange with Neil Rose and Arthur Mallet. Welcome to another episode of the Talk Exchange. I'm here again with Neil Rose and... We just wanted to get back out there because, is it true? I just learned that inflation was at 8.3% in April. That's insane. And consumer confidence is at an 11-year low. I mean, that's what it seems like out there, to be honest. If I just had to take a guess, those are not maybe not the specific numbers, but that's the feeling you get, and the markets seem to be feeling that too. Yeah, I think the, you know, the inflation numbers continue to surprise people because – you think about the beginning when the numbers really started to spike. Uh, I mean, they spike so much that one could only think that they'll come down real quickly, right? Some aberration or there'll be some uh, regression to the mean. But some of these higher numbers month after month, um, you know, they continue to stay pretty high. 8.3% in April and I think the month before that was, what, uh, nine, you know, 9% or something. So the the inflation rate is coming down a little bit, I mean, a tiny bit. Um, but that, and that's year over year. It doesn't mean prices are going down. It just means the rate of increase comes down a little bit, which still means prices are going up a lot. So uh, it's obviously a, a, a real face smash, I guess, for investors who for a long time kind of just took it for granted that inflation would be low and steady forever. Right. And, and look at the bond market if you, if you have any um, doubts about that, right? Bonds, a lot of it's priced in terms of future expectations of inflation and growth and things like that. So, so when you have low rates and there's sort of this maximum confidence that the Fed will always be able to manage inflation at a low and steady rate, and, and, and you're actually thinking about deflation and conversations always about the 30s and the Great Depression, and, and that's our economic ghost. So Americans are almost uh, almost primed to always think in terms of deflation. Maybe different story if you're from Argentina or Germany where your, your ghost, uh, your never-forget economic thing is, is inflation or hyperinflation. So it's, it's disrupting. I, w- I would say the, the inflation thing is probably the most uh, important matter of the time and maybe for some time, uh, more so than Ukraine, more so than COVID, uh, geopolitics, domestic politics, Democrats versus Republicans, all that. Uh, you know, when you or when people start to question more and more the value of money, and and, and in a way they've never had to think about for decades and decades, uh, you know, maybe since the '70s, but even then, that was that was um, I mean, it was a fixed amount of time, but very disruptive for pricing and policies and and just just a lot of sort of knockdown effects. You know, that, that is the question of the day. If I had one thing I wish I knew, obviously it would be the trajectory of uh, inflation going forward because then you have some idea about interest rates. And if you have some idea about interest rates, you have a huge 
um, a huge factor kind of put away in, in, in how you price things going forward. So, right. There's a, there's a myriad of understandings that you need to have to get a sense of the pricing of any asset class. And anytime you could eliminate one, that would obviously give you a huge advantage, especially one of the core tenants of, such as interest rates. So just as a, a start-off point, we had a, a podcast episode about inflation. Uh, it was certainly more focused on the COVID side. That was more the timing of that podcast episode. Um, have any of your thoughts regarding inflation changed? Is it in terms of, is this maybe a peak? Is it more transitory still? Or do we think that some of these things have sort of stepped on each other's toes and now we've got the compounding effect of multiple issues that are all sort of just rearing their ugly head at one moment, which turns this into less of a, hey, the supply chain, the supply chain, the supply chain, and more into, we got to buckle up and maybe prepare for this environment for a little while? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I just thought of something that kind of surprises me he did. He had, about, a little, he had a little smirk on his face yeah, as well, I was talking, and I was like, oh, no, where are we going? No, just realizing something about myself. You know, so when it comes to interest rates and inflation or inflation-deflation question, I've noticed that people generally don't change their minds about either where they think the direction is going or how important it is. Um, and that's true for me, and, and that's surprising because you know, let's, let's, let's go back you know, a year or two or three years. Or more. Um, again, most of the world. We were just young men then. We were just young men. The, you were in your thirties. Yeah. Uh, actually, no. If I'm thinking about it, no. Uh, yeah, I guess I was in my thirties. But the, you know, the inflation uh, deflation thing. You know how one's oriented, or how they view the world, or, or how much they're afraid of one versus the other. You know, a lot of it is based on general assumptions about how the machine works, the economy works, policy works, the links between policy and all that, and and it, as well as their own personal fears and biases and, and interpretations of history and things like that. Um, but, you know, like I said earlier, for years, just about everybody, the concern is deflation. And I've had so many conversations, really smart people, um, and, you know, maybe nine out of ten – Inflation not a, not a thing, not a factor. Um, you know, a lot of them go to the to the extremes where it's like inflation is impossible, or um, maybe maybe the very extreme is that new school of economic thought, modern monetary theory, which they say you know get the deficits and print even more money because uh, you know we 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 have debts in money that we print, so you know let's right. let's keep going the well and it'll never actually affect uh, inflation. Uh, and I think that as they look at these kinds of numbers, I'm guessing the view hasn't changed. Uh, they'll say, well, you know, money multiplier has gone down. The velocity of money has gone down. So, you know, banks are holding reserves. They're not making loans. And, and if all that money out there sloshing around doesn't multiply through loans and fractional reserve banking and, you know, the things you sort of learn in Econ 101, you really can't have inflation. I think that's a very antiquated model because that's certainly the way that it worked. But, you know, in the last couple of decades, we've seen a – we've seen sort of shadow money multipliers. Um, you know, maybe the biggest of which is like the repo market. So money multiplies not so much because a bank gets money and makes loans and that bank 
saves 10% of that money and, and loans out 90% and so on and so forth, you know, people are getting cash now by collateralizing assets or entering into derivative uh, contracts and, and, or swaps, or, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to, you know, get money in this day and age. They're not traditional loans anymore, whether it's mortgages or, or inventory loans or construction loans, things like that. There are loans of all kinds. There's loans, most of the loans I, I would think are for speculation. Uh, and, and Well, it certainly seemed to be the case in the last few years where money was so cheap that people would, why would they go into their own wallet when they could, if they're expecting returns greater than this incredibly floored interest rate, why wouldn't you borrow money to go invest in something, make a decision that requires the, the funds, and then you could just see it grow at a higher rate than what you're paying. Yeah, so it, it, you know, sort of rational, right? Especially when your downside is somewhat limited. You know, someone might lose their job or have egg on their face, or um, you know, nobody's going to get a pound of flesh extracted. It's, this is this is far from <laughs> this is far from old menace. Um, and but you know, you back up, and again, the fee, the pervasive fear is deflation. Meanwhile, we have you know money printing. More money printing, financial crisis. More money printing. That that money was supposed to be sort of taken out. Interest rates were supposed to rise. Instead, we entered into all kinds of facilities and QE, you know, quantitative easing one, two, three, four, whatever. That um, seemed for a while there. It seemed to be since the financial crisis, quantitative easing seemed to just be the the de facto process for the Fed, and it turns into this policy that freed up a lot of money. Of course, it created this freedom and this environment which seemed very market friendly, very investment friendly because money seemed to come easy and we've seen some of those bubbles, especially in the last few months, kind of come crashing down a little bit because of that free money concept has sort of disappeared and all of a sudden those assets that look a little speculative or are speculative in nature, they tend to be eroded they tend to drop very quickly because all of a sudden that mentality is completely shifted. What I said earlier about, you know, mines having not changing. So, and I'm talking, you know, I was talking about nine out of 10 is deflation. And let's just take it for granted that uh, the real fear is deflation or lower interest rates, lower inflation um, deficits and, and deflationary spirals. Um, when we talked about this many times, sort of, you know, my, my attitude at the time was, okay, that that's, that's the zeitgeist. That's the consensus. Interest rates can only go to zero more or less. And we've actually seen they can go negative. Um, if you have $10 billion and interest rates are zero, you're not going to take that cash and put it in a vault. You're not going to take out, you know, armed warehouse space and right. Right. So, so companies, not in this real estate market. Yeah. I'm so, <laughs> so, so, you know, we, we've seen, and it's still today, there's some, there are big money that is out there that is willing to get a negative interest rate for one reason or another. But, you know, but there's got to be some lower bound at some point. So you get to a point where, okay, if interest rates can't be um, materially less than zero, then you sort of have an asymmetric situation, which is, you know, the, the risk that you have to consider or at least bet on is the, the upward movement of inflation and interest rates. Right. Uh, especially when... That's not priced in. That's not the expectation. So it's like a stock that's sort of priced for perfection, completely parabolic chart and hundred times sales, and you know everyone's for it. Um, you know, there's really only one way to go. It's down. You know, right? all these spectacular things have to happen for 
that stock to justify itself price-wise, you know, a year or two, three years from now. So interest rates was the same thing. So, so the rational thing seemed, seemed to be that, okay, don't have, don't have hard assumptions about the direction of interest rates or inflation. Just put yourself in a position where, uh, you know, I know I say this probably too much, but put yourself in a position where it's heads I win, tails I don't lose, or I don't lose much. And so, you know, you can sort of bet on inflation for very cheap, or at least, or as I like to think about it, protect yourself for cheap. That that insurance became cheap. So, you know, how do you do that? Well, you you have a portfolio that's not tilted to long-term bonds, and you don't have hardly any of those things, and you sit with idle cash earning nothing, and and you know, you're missing out on some yield, but not not much. I mean, hardly anything at all. And if you're wrong, okay, you you didn't pick up some income, but if rates go up, now your cash is king, and you can now the buy optionality things. exists. Right? The optionality now, now the shopping list comes out. Huge, huge value in optionality, especially when that optionality is you know cheap to free. So. So again, nine out of ten deflation. That one out of ten, there. Most of those folks, I think, are, you know, they're they're in the permanent, um, you know, gold bug camp. Meaning, like they're they're just always thinking the dollar's gonna, money money will just be worthless, and you know, they they buy gold and no matter what, it's sort of an evergreen strategy. And and I never understood the gold bug extreme either. So, the deflation extreme, the gold bug extreme, or inflation extreme. Uh, I say, you know, you have to kind of look at it probabilistically and... and Well, to be honest, there's also generally, if you think about any rational thought or rational investing, any extreme or anything that puts things in black and white tends to be almost irrational at times because, of course, the environments change over time. And you can be right, you know, broken watches right twice a day kind of thing. So it's sort of a limit it limits your ability to be flexible in your thought if you have a perma anything well it, part of it's structural so you know, we have the ability to hold cash or do nothing um, most institutional money doesn't have that luxury because their only objective is to beat some kind of if you're a bond manager some some long-term be- bond benchmark or, or or something that is already priced uh, to perfection so you're playing the relative game um, so so, I mean, that's sort of the environment. And I think going, you look at now, I don't think a lot of people have changed their mind about anything. I don't think hardly anybody's changed their mind. I know I haven't changed my mind, which is, uh, I don't know where it's going. I don't know if, if this inflation truly is transitory or it's going to keep rising. The rate is going to keep rising. I don't know where interest rates are going to be. Um, and, and I guess that, that maybe that surprises me a little bit. Um, cause I, I, I thought by now we'd have more information to have maybe some, you know, some some conviction in a direction. Yeah, not conv- yeah. It's hard to have conviction, but just you know, sort of leanings. Um, so I'm I'm still kind of this. I'm still agnostic in terms of direction, and and yet that's okay because you know, as interest rates have gone up, you know, we've deployed that cash little by little by little into high and higher rates. Um, we have, uh, and, and yet. Three quarters, probably, of our bond position is under three years, and, and mostly treasuries. Right. And you mentioned we mentioned that a little bit in the last episode, and I wanted to just as a, I mean, right now the treasury rates are climbing, but they're still still only at about three percent, which is very low if you're looking on a you know historically and sort of in a longer time. Is that obviously does that play into that directional 
leanings and your the in, the inability to finally decide if it's going to go up or down because if they're that still historically low it seems to logic to the layman that well then let's assume they'll go up maybe um but you know, we have to acknowledge kind of what's what's happened so far right the 10 year treasury is about what 3% more or less uh and in a short period of time you've had at least price wise you've had the biggest contraction in bond prices for at least two centuries, a century or two, I think two centuries maybe. Uh, that's a big deal. And yet, and, and all of that is precipitated by what are small changes in interest rates, right? In the last, I don't know, year, year and a half. So we had one and a half percent 10 year bond. Now we have three. Okay, that's doesn't seem like a big change rate wise, but what it does to bond prices is pretty tremendous. So um, you know, year to date, the 10 year treasury, I think is down over 10%. The 30 year treasury, the long-term treasury is down uh, 25 plus percent. Um, the, the bond aggregates. So most, most investors who have a diversified bond fund or, or something that more or less is, um, you know, the bond market, uh, you know, they're down somewhere in the teens and, you know, by and large, which is about the same that, that the stock market overall is down. Um, I should say the averages, averages are very weighted to the top, but, but the market itself is probably down a lot more because the small stuff, right. The, the average stock itself is down more than what the S and P is down. Right. So, and we talked about how you know, 50% of the NASDAQ stocks are down over 50%. Right. So, so, so this little move in interest rates up has just destroyed uh, a lot of value uh, so far, and hopefully it's just temporary, transitory. Um, you know, I, I just I look at, I mean, investors for the first time in I don't know I don't even know if this matches the financial crisis. It might be worse, but if you have this diversified portfolio, stocks and bonds, sixty forty, fifty fifty, whatever, you probably have never seen. A, a loss this big and it's, right. it's, it's, you know, it's not even June yet. And, but, but that said that those, you know, a lot of those losses can come from the bonds and those can be transitory or it should actually should be transitory, right? Because a bond has to mature at par, right? right. So you're going to get your money back. You're going to get your money back. Price. You're going to get it. So, so, you know, I look at, you know, some of the losses we have, which pretty mild in comparison. And yet, um, you know, I look at it and say, well, a lot of those losses actually, next one, two, three years are, are going to reverse themselves regardless automatically because these bonds get closer to par, especially when these bonds are mostly on the short end. Uh, the long-term stuff can be negative for some time, but but that's okay too because over time you're collecting these higher interest rates, three, four plus percent, and and then when it matures, you still have you know a, a compounded returns for that those single bonds that's positive. Right. Um, but but this is good news. And so, you know, we are looking at uh, maybe a continuation of something that's happened for a while now, which is regardless of strategy, uh, you know, we're we're making more income week after week after week. Yeah. So I do want to touch on that because yesterday you said we were talking about this, you know, just what we're going to do for this episode. And you were saying this environment in some ways is good news. You went so far as to say. It's a springtime for income, a nod to the producers, uh, for those who are familiar with that, that play movie. Um, 
let's explain yourself a little bit. Like, let's hear about this, you know, this income we're now going to be generating, the world of maybe increased income and how that can benefit, you know, at various clients, even in all sorts of strategies, not just our income strategy. Yeah, I- income itself is sort of evergreen, right? People, people love income. Um, you know, we love income. Uh, you know, we love it less if, if the source of the income can be more efficiently deployed in, let's say, growth if it's a stock. Um, bonds you, you buy for, yes, for income, but most bonds are bought also as a diversifier or a deflation hedge. But in just a short period of time, think about this, we all went from this sort of um, malaise and, and regarding income, interest rates are zero. Um, people are doing crazy things because money's burning a hole in their pocket, earning nothing. Hence those and bubbles we've seen. The bubbles, uh, the the reach for yield, the the crazy SPAC craze, you know, these blank check companies. Um, and and that wasn't that long ago. And all of a sudden, you're seeing, you're getting paid for money again. Higher rates are obviously bad for PE multiples and stock valuations in, in the short term, especially when those PE multiples are stretched. And that's the environment we've been in. And, and so it's only logical that stocks should correct and the more expensive the stock, the more it corrects. Uh, but in a short period of time, you know, we've, we've, um, we don't feel it maybe emotionally yet, but at least on paper, we went from this sort of desert now to this, this more normalized environment where you're getting paid for your money or you're getting more income. We have to remember like we, it's funny, investors, institutional investors, high net worth individuals, you know, we're all human. So we all, as a society, think, oh, low rates are good. Because we always think in terms of borrowers, but we're actually all lenders. Right. Right. When you have, when we have excess capital, which, you know, this is, this is the business we're in, we're managing people's excess capital. Therefore, they're lenders, they're investors. Uh, do they want low yield or high yield? You know, less income or more income? More, right? And so the medium to long-term income generation uh, ability, uh, state of the world, is getting improved by the day. Bond yields are going up. And so long as you're not already lent for long-term and, you locked, in, yield, yeah. and you locked in a low <laughs> rate, in which, you know, thank God we're not, then this is actually all opportunity because you're getting paid again. You're getting paid almost 3% for two to five-year bonds. Treasuries now. Um, you know, with no state income tax and great liquidity, you're getting uh, more than that if it's to uh, to uh, a company or an institution with with more credit risk than uh, the U.S. Treasury. And you know, I'm talking like Apple, Microsoft, you know, right. companies that you look five years from now, you look at their balance sheet and say they're not going to default in their. They're debt. not going anywhere. <laughs> not going. Uh, you know, we bought some. You We've know, been limping in real lightly with. Um, I mean, really tiny amounts on the longer end, 10 and 20 years. Both uh, the borrower there is, is Berkshire Hathaway, uh, guaranteed by probably the most uh, financially robust company on earth. Uh, and, you know, four and four and a half percent type yields. Again, that's, that's good. Um, you know, it's real role also is, you know, you got to have something for the other side, deflation or, or recession, and those should do better because if we have recession... Uh, all of a sudden, these these inflation fears really start to go away. Um, so we're so the income picture is uh, improving by the day. I'm this week. I I, I really want to look into what our various um, strategies 
portfolio yield is, uh, you know, between bonds and stocks, is it two and a half percent? Is it three percent? Like, what, what's the current income generation? Um, uh, and uh, and those tend to even be understated because a lot of positions we have often have special dividends or anything like that wouldn't show up in a calculation like that. Right. So they're usually understated or at least artificially low because there's no way to predict officially what could come, right. even if there's a history of it, just by the nature of it being a special dividend versus a scheduled yeah. one. Yeah, and that's why it takes time because, I mean, as good as software has become, no software can actually tell you what, accurately what the yield of your portfolio is. I mean, there's always a number that shows, whether it's on the web or whatever, but but they're oftentimes wrong. Bonds, you have to... Um, you know, you, you can't you can't measure a bond's yield the same way you measure a stock. You know, take the income divided by the price. That's that's you know that that is the call yield as they call it in bonds. We're really interested in yield to maturity. If we have this three year bond, we hold it for three years. What's our annual uh, yield on that? The coupon, yes, but also the difference between where that bond price, price is and, par. and where it goes par. Dividends, the same thing. You have to look at, um, you know, you have to look at the current dividend rate. Uh, you have to, and then you have to. Uh, depending on the, the company, it does make sense to sort of extrapolate four quarters out because most companies will pay the same dividend and they'll raise it every year. Right. And so anyways, and the and math then, never looks like that when you're coming out of a software, when you right. look it up, because they're never going to assume something that hasn't right. been literally put on the tape. Yeah. And, and then you, like you mentioned, we have stocks with special dividends. You have to sort of incorporate that. Uh, we have uh, a couple of securities where the uh, good yield and they, they will probably reset. Um, in fact, there's the option to reset higher if it's not redeemed at a certain time. Uh, and then, um, you know, the latest addition was, uh, you know, a, a inflation protected security. Again, who knows what the rate on that is because that's going to be more or less uh, determined by inflation over the next ten years. So, um, but I, I would, I would, I would venture that the yield on the portfolio currently is higher than. I, uh, I've ever seen or, or participated in. And even though we've certainly had much higher interest rate environments over the last 20 years, um, but uh, I think part of it is just the, the, the stocks, the bonds, just the, the nature of, you know, the things we're, we're doing. And um, I think that's very, I think that's hopeful because that income, I mean, knock on wood, that, that income is, high probability, you know, nothing's guaranteed in life, but this is high quality. Like the, uh, these incomes, I don't think the U S treasury is going to default. Uh, <laughs> and they've already proved that rather than default, they'll just print more money. So, uh, I always also like to joke if that ever were to happen, we'd have such larger problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> it would be a much different world we're in. <laughs> and this is, you know, and then, and then you have to sort of think about, you don't want to put this on paper, but you have to think about, okay, well, if inflation does play out, I mentioned the tips, they yield more. Uh, we do have a portion of the portfolio that is very much, um, they throw off a lot of income, but the nature of the business is pro-inflationary. So we're talking about companies with, whether they're materials or, or oil and gas or... Anyone who can pass those prices through very quickly without right. with minimal friction. Right. And and they have like large fixed asset bases. I mean, they have operating leverage, right? You think of a company with a lot of plant equipment. They're going to pay mostly for that plant equipment, rain or shine. They have to, um, and so, uh, and this is a double-edged sword. When those prices increase, the profits on that increase by a a mul multiple of that uh, commodity price or, or 
uh, price of goods increase. And then that all of a sudden PEs can go from 15 to five just on the earnings, assuming the price doesn't move, but the price will move up. And then the dividend payment in cash terms will go up and maybe, maybe a lot. So, so this, you know, the, the, there is there are parallels to spring. It is springtime for for income, and and um, I mean unless everything kind of turns around quickly, uh, price wise, and we have a severe recession to the point where companies, even the highest quality companies, companies that never cut their dividend before, all of a sudden are cutting dividends. You know, then we might have an income problem. But I, you know, looking at the inflation again, no forecast, but you do look at some of these things that are contributing to. The inflation picture. The Fed is already uh, reversing its contribution to inflation. They're taking money out of the economy through higher rates. They're no longer buying long-term bonds. Um, you know, they're letting them run off. Um, and so, so that that certainly is a probably a prime reason why inflation, you know, will moderate and eventually come down. But we're also dealing with um, pretty perfect storm in terms of. Uh, you know, transitory inflation, how transitory, I don't know, but we got, we have, you know, years of low commodity prices and therefore low investment and prices have risen, but the, but the supply hasn't come up yet because you can't just turn on a switch and all of a sudden create more fertilizer or more metal or more oil and gas. Even, um, we have a, we have a crisis in all things, transport and supply chain and started with COVID and, and a lot of those things kind of continue. Um, China, nothing's moving out of China, or very little's moving out of China. China's on lockdown. Zero COVID policy there has disrupted the supply chain like maybe nothing else. Uh, hard to get things. I, you know, I have a, um, you know, we bought a, a piece of a, a equipment um, for, uh, you know, uh, is a wood chipper basically. Uh, I think we're 17 months still haven't gotten it yet. Just got an email this month. You haven't gotten that yet. Haven't gotten. You've it yet. been talking about that wood chipper <laughs> yeah, for so, literally a year. Yeah. And so yeah, <laughs> we so, were so excited to use this, this wood chipper. We, we got noticed that it's finally being manufactured, and it's manufactured in the U.S. and all that. But I'm sure there there are parts that come from all over the world, and they just haven't been able to get it. So, so we have this supply crunch, which I do believe is temporary. I mean, the cure for high prices is high prices. I mean. If, if, if a widget made, uh, you know, in China goes up five, ten times and you actually can't get this enough supply, well, guess what? Somebody's going to decide to make money by developing that widget, you know, either right. in the States or source it from Mexico or someplace else. And that becomes that transitory yeah. part of it because that's the time it takes to get to that place where that market begins to sprout up is right. that transitory moment. Yeah, so... Um, but you know, we, like I said, perfect storm. Geopolitics, uh, Ukraine, you know, uh, Europe is. I uh, can't think of a more nightmare situation for Europe than than their their uh, petroleum getting cut off. Most of that comes from Russia. Uh, so so, and so it's great if like let's say you're a U.S. producer because now the global it's and oil's a global market no one producer or one country controls the the price of oil um you know but when the supply gets cut like that prices go up europeans are already paying a lot more than we do for imported uh for oil and gas in general um so our that's why they have more. such small cars right but but 
but some people say, well, our price should be going down because now, um, you know, we, we are, we are already kind of oil and gas self-sufficient. We make a lot, we export a lot. Um, you know, but the problem is it's a global market. So if you're a U.S. producer and you can sell for a higher price overseas, well, you're going to put it on a boat and, and, and ship it out. So, um, so anyway, there's, there's just a lot of reasons why inflation can stay and these incomes can, these incomes not only go up or stay, stay relatively higher than people assume, um, but frankly, you need that because otherwise you're losing purchasing power if you're not capturing you know, gains and, and specifically yield. Then I guess let's think, I'm trying to think of what would be any signal for you uh, in terms of what either the economic, global economics or any of the markets or the interest rates for you to essentially sell those positions, those short-term bonds, because all of a sudden you want to shift gears because the world's presenting a different face to you. Is there anything that you're looking for? Or is it really just as things come, you start making the tilts and adjustments? And as you'd mentioned, you're, you buy in, you creep into positions, because of course, if there is a direction change, you're not all the way in on it right away, which means that you have the optionality to kind of bring it back around. But would there be anything specific you would look for? Um, I, you know, I sort of think of the, you know, we have cash, uh, we have T-bills, you know, earning 1% to 2%. We have, you know, a lot of one to two year bonds, uh, two, two and three quarters percent to 3%. Um, and what's nice about those is they're, they're liquid. You have a three-year treasury, two-year treasury, especially a one-year treasury. You don't have to wait till it matures. Well, of, of course, but I guess my question being, you know, part of the strategy of having those short-term bonds is that we get to hold them to maturity. So, you know, what is the paper loss right now has a tailwind in the future once we get closer and closer to that date. So there would have to be something, if I guess my question is, if something is out there that you would be looking for that would have the upside to potential to basically say, you know what, we'll eat that paper loss that we're incurring right now because the next best thing is going to be even greater. Right. So uh, this is a good example. So let's say there's a two-year bond, and on paper it's down 4.5%, which is nobody, you know, been a long time since anybody's seen a loss of 2% on a, or a, a, a short-term high-quality issue like that in such a short period of time. So we know, again, assuming there's no default by Treasury or you know, companies like Apple or whatever, that, yeah, it's down 4%, call it, but over the next two years, it's going to be up 6.5% because it has to mature at par. We're going to collect right. dividends. So we can, we can calculate what the upside is. So that becomes the benchmark – for opportunity cost, right? So, so you know, up six and a half on uh, on on that bond, with you know, with with high conviction, you know, virtual certainty. Uh, or we need something else, but that something else would have to be it'd be less certain. Therefore, it needs a higher projected rate. Right. Um, I'll give you an example. So, you know, what would look better than that guaranteed or close to guaranteed six and a half percent upside on a bond? Um, let's say Microsoft falls in half. Right, I think that would be a generational buying opportunity, and right. and so you eat your loss, uh, or at least close your loss, or realize that loss, mm-hmm. which will actually help with the tax situation, and then you're buying Microsoft at a ridiculously cheap price, with with a dividend yield and a lot more to come, and I mean that company is increasing their dividend rate at a dividend payment at a high rate, um, so there would be that, or let's say bond market continues to fall, meaning rates go up, 
And then all of a sudden we have a, another two-year bond or three-year bond or five-year bond that has a higher interest rate than 6.5%. Right. And now you get to compare two effective right. certainties just based on a math right. calculation. So I, I, you know, especially in that case, just like the Microsoft situation, we actually wouldn't have to sell the bond to to buy that, that stock or that other bond. We have Luck, cash. Right. But, Luckily, we're but, prepared. But if we had to realize a short-term bond loss to basically make more money over the next few years, that that's sort of a no-brainer. Yeah. I find that because that's interesting that you mentioned those generational, because I think in March of 2020, we saw that massive dip in the stock market. And for most people, it seemed because, again, rates were at zero, there's this there was this urgency, which probably contributed to the massive market increases for that year in the last couple of years. But there was that feeling, and it was so generally felt across even the layman investor that this is a temporary moment, and this is basically a moment of fear and panic. I mean, oil went to zero, which makes no sense at all, just because we were staying at home. I mean, there's not a place in the world that we all thought we would never leave our houses again and never use electricity. Like, that doesn't make much sense, but that's where we were. So it's interesting to hear that that same process might occur. It just might not be as perfectly window-dressed as that one moment where we all sort of felt the same thing. It'll be more specific, potentially, you know, company-specific or industry-specific, and I think that's going to be – makes this fun. I mean, that's honestly what makes our job fun compared to – if you're a day trader sitting at home and you were just obviously already sitting at home and <laughs> buying you, the dip, yeah, quote unquote, I, is always is always a risky endeavor, except if the entire world feels the same thing. I guess I guess, you know, a lot of this is just for me talking to myself about um you know, really uh, paying attention because as close as I look at this stuff, it's it's things have changed so fast in prices that even if you're watching it every day, you're still surprised about what is done over a month, two months, three months, year to date. If you were to ask me what is Amazon down this year, year to date, I would I would tell you maybe twenty percent, maybe. Yeah, I'm looking it up right now. It's down. Yeah, I was like cheater. You have your iPad in front of you. Well, it's, well that's what because I'm, well, I'm I was thinking about that as you were talking, and, and I would have said maybe twenty percent, right? Uh, Amazon's down thirty three percent. Google, a fantastic business model. I could have substituted Microsoft for Google. Right. That's down in half. And, and that one's been killed uh, actually for, for some time. Year-to-date, it's down 20%, Just again, a lot. Um, maybe not that much more than the market itself. Market's down, what, 15%? Uh, but, um, I mean, things have moved quickly. And so, uh, you know, one, one mistake I want to not make so much going forward is, is a mistake I made in the past where – not having that appreciation for how fast things move down. And, you know, you you knew that you wanted to buy it at this price. Right. Right. Or or thinking, oh, gosh, if this thing fell 40%, I'd buy a ton of it. Or at least, you know, buy a double up. Well, that's kind of happening. Or that's that's the direction it's taking. And so... Right. You want to have your finger yeah, on the trigger, yeah. not con- thinking right. about potentially maybe and, having it on the right. trigger in the and, future, because it's now. And I have to realize, you know... We have Microsoft, we have Google, we have Amazon, but we also have them in weights that are much less than maybe where we had it four years ago. Right. Right. So, so, and that's another thing people don't really appreciate is they only look at the stock they have. They don't necessarily look at how much money they have in it. Right. Right. So, so, you know, we've got uh, our worst performing stock, you know, which, which was, you know, 1% type position, 
um, sold out, take a top tax loss. Then we got back in, and all the while knowing that this is going to be either down a lot or this is going to be three five x. You know, over you know three five years. Um, this one is down fifty eight percent. Twilio. Um, you do love you some Twilio. I do. Well, I just, I think it's one of those companies where, um, I mean the 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 growth is is impressive. It'll continue. They do something that is as you know maybe as important as any entrenched software company um, in a in a in a in a marketplace that's growing by the day. Um, for it, for the average person, why don't you give a quick brief summary of what Twilio is and what it does? Oh, so Twilio, Twilio, very is, brief, yeah, Neil. Very brief. Twilio is to digital communications the same way Microsoft is to, you know, Word or Excel or Google is to search. There's so, a very funny meme about Microsoft Word going around. They're the only company in the world that has not improved their product for decades and somehow is still the only one you're supposed to use. Um, <laughs> I'd say the same thing about Heinz Ketchup. I don't think they can improve the, the product. It just, you know, it works. Well, I, so, yeah, it's yeah, good, so, good enough. Yeah, it's good enough. Um, and, but companies now need to communicate with their customers more and the internet and mobile and all this has basically made more communication possible. So when you get those emailed um, confirmations, when you make uh, reservations or you, your, your app gives you a notice that your Uber driver's here, all of those communications, the, the lion's share of that comes from this company, Twilio. Great. And that so, does sound like a pretty impressive so, market. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a software as a service company. Companies latch on. Developers love it because this is the stuff that makes apps talk to customers, companies talk to customers. Uh, you know, you want to know that when, when you get the update that your pizza delivery has arrived or that uh, payment is needed for this, that it's, it's Twilio. Um, it's, it's, and these, these, these messages they send, whether through email, text, or through an app, it costs the the customer, meaning the company or the app, fractions of a penny per, uh, you know, per 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 address per delivery. That played out really well in office yeah. space. You know, the fractional penny you pull off of the end of a transaction. That's right. That's right. It's a good business model. Well, so multiple, and so it's it's cheap, and so the return on investment for for a company, any company, it doesn't matter what industry you're selling shoes, and you have a customer who. Every year buys cleats at the beginning of football season. Uh, you now, for the first time through other companies, you have the data to retain that and know that customer. You could have Salesforce. You could know, hey, this customer came in and they bought these shoes, this price. Um, think about when you go to Safeway or some grocery store, you punch in your number because you want the discounts. Well, all that data now is being captured by the company. Now these companies can prompt you and anticipate your need. They know that Arthur's going to buy cleats in September. So he might get an email in August saying, we got a sale on this, this, you know, this company, this brand that you like. That, and again, that costs a fraction of a penny of the company. Uh, the return on investment on that stuff is, is huge. So I, I, I love these companies, uh, and this doesn't guarantee success in terms of investment, but, but you have to start with some good fundamental basics, which is does this company do something special, something valuable, to right. all stakeholders, and and they do so. But again, that but knowing it's going to be volatile as heck, and it is. Um, you know, do we have to be squeamish about it? No, why? Because it's it's you it's know, a fraction of no, a fraction it's, you know, of it's, your it's, portfolio. It's, it's you know, it's half a percent of the portfolio. So what, right? right? So and and you know, the best investments, um, 
are, it, it, you don't make your money on that first foray, foray into, the, into the stock or the first tranche that you buy. It's the second buy. It's the third buy. Um, and, and that's kind of a, a lesson I picked up because most allocation, it's, you know, everything you're going to buy, you're going to buy right away. You're going to buy the full position right now. Well, what happens is it does what it does, which is, you know, go down, on, right? Because of Murphy's Law or whatever. And all of a sudden you're looking at 10% loss and you panic and you sell. And then you never look at it again because you have that. You got burned. You got burned. You got that scar. Whereas you buy a little bit and say, I hope this goes down because. I want more. If the thesis plays out and, you know, over time you get more information and hope, and, and lower prices, you're like, yeah, this is the second or third buy that's going to be uh, the real difference maker. And, um, and, and sometimes you need a little bit. You need some skin in the game and a lot of things just to follow it, just to, you know, be somewhat Johnny on the spot when the time is right to It does help invest. to set up that trigger finger because, honestly, there's such a vast array of options to invest in. It's, it's this endless, you know, mural of potential places you could put the money. Right. When you have that small foothold, then all of a sudden, just by nature, you are focused on it a little bit more. It sticks out more because you want to keep track of it. Um, and then I think, you know, from my observation of, of the way that these get executed to their, and they're in the best circumstances, when these major market events happen, when we have these, you know, these moments where the frothiness in the stock market, the bond market is intense and very, very, very bad, there is this hope, this sort of upside potential that pushes you forward and it makes, it makes this part fun. You know, the, the amateur investor part of this world gets a little bit washed out, which is always unfortunate. People who, you know, in the last few years have maybe believed this to be a pretty easy gig. And all of a sudden you get to be in a situation where it pays to really be paying attention to this on an everyday basis, not for the sake of trading, but just for the sake of seeing these theses play out. Like you said, collect more information time after time. And all that does is the best part is it either reinforces what you believed or it chips away at it. And again, you only have a foothold and you get rid of it and you learned your lesson or you learned maybe that you made an overassumption on a certain part of your thesis and you didn't give enough credence to something else that could have negatively affected it. And it becomes a great lesson to learn at a relatively low cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, well said. I, you know, really, really hard to add to that. I just... You know what we deal with is so much. There's just so much nuance, right? And you know, here I'm thinking, okay, we got we got a tiny position down half, right? We got other positions, uh, you know, up 30, 40 percent in roughly the same period of time, and and uh, and we got other things where it's like, okay, well, you know, what's next? Or if if I mentioned if Microsoft falls a lot, yeah, we add. If Amazon falls, we add. Costco falls, we'll add. We all and, know you'll add if Costco yeah, falls, well, Neil. Well, we, that's we, our Costco podcast. I said I wouldn't be buying right now. It's it's, it's a high price. Um, it's it's down, you know, about a hundred bucks plus, um, and still not cheap. But but you know, if it, I'm hoping it gets cheaper because we've got more to add. Have yeah. less. We have a, a lower weighting in Costco now than you know we did three years ago, or I did three years ago. So um, so anyway, so a lot of these positions are are really they're light. Um, and and so, you you combine that with the relative short termism of of the of the bond holdings and you know cash and some things that uh, some of the inflation hedges have done well. You know we're we're you know we're down this year like everyone else. It, it's not you know it's not the fifteen percent you have in a 
typical balanced portfolio right now. Um, you know, it's still single digit. Uh, it, it's and it's hard because things are changing so frequently. I don't know if we're down five, six, seven percent or whatever. But but to be uh, fair, this is a Saturday, so this is one of the few times where we can talk yeah. about this and have at least one day yeah, we'll to have, figure out what, where we stand and oh, not no, have a change we, under us. Weekends are yeah. We'll, we'll have a podcast about weekends. Um, I, I think it's super critical to the to the to the process investing and all that. But um, we all wish there was a three or four day weekend. Be great if there were only a couple trading days a week, so we could all actually yeah. learn something and not right. react all the time. But I and and granted, there's been a lot of luck too, you know, last year and this year. Um, but yeah, I look at whatever losses are there now in the you know the, the multi asset portfolios, uh, which is most of the clients, uh, almost all the clients. Uh, looking at those losses year to date, knowing that a big chunk of those maybe almost half are going to reverse just naturally if we do nothing because again these bonds have to mature at par um and and you collect coupons along the or yeah coupons along the way um the stock side again that's always you know hopefully over time those if we do nothing they return and go up and and make money like uh you know like they've they've always done but i think our position is actually stronger than the beginning of the year because yeah we're down but a lot of these stocks and a lot of these things we shop for or look at or follow they're down a lot more and so our purchasing power for these assets uh has has gone up and 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 so you know our mindset is yeah we we want to be defensive we think we are uh, and you're never as defensive as you want to be and you can't time things perfectly but i think it's really time to start thinking offense too in terms of uh, or at least not losing the offensive mindset because there will be bargains. There are there maybe are some bargains now, and certainly if we have another month like the last month, there are going to be tons of bargains. I say all that with the caveat that you know, we are facing some pretty crazy existential risks. You know, geopolitics. We right. still haven't priced in, you know, even the remote possibility of nuclear war, or or kind of again, uh, nuclear war would be one of those things where. We really hope everyone's portfolios are fine, but also that you found a great bomb shelter. <laughs> well, it's, well, if it is nuclear war, and this and this is why maybe nuclear war never really gets priced in, because if it is nuclear war, who cares? Your money's not going to be important exactly. anyway. Exactly. Right? So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, but but you know, but inflation, interest rates, right? If we have stagflation, or if the Fed is caught between a rock and a hard place, where it the the politicians pressure them to not raise rates as aggressively because it's going to kill jobs, kill. Prices kill home prices, kill it, re-election campaigns. You kill you know so so that that taper of inflation might take longer than people think just for political reasons. Um, I, you know, I don't know. So I'm 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 gosh I I'm as macro afraid as I've been in a while. Um, now luckily it's not financial crisis kind of stuff because we just don't have those kinds of balance sheets right now. Or at least in the private sector, maybe the the public sector is another issue. Uh, but um, and and people are scared you you said the consumer sentiments 11 year low if you pull wall street wall street's uh at least expectation wise is pretty bearish um and so all things equal that's good stuff so we i don't want to lose sight of the the bargain hunting even as we kind of you know think defense and all that and and again our, our clients have such a margin of safety in terms of their wealth yet they're on a conservative strategy manager for a reason but you can't forget that these these fluctuating markets, these 
sort of uh, you know, mild, but mild losses are not only temporary, but it doesn't change their long-term objectives. Right. Time horizon is always this overlaying most almost I mean almost the most important factor when you think of someone's risk appetite if you forget about it's easy to forget about that when things like this are occurring because there's that immediacy and you know of course what you read and what you hear is always promoting that fear and that sort of anxiety but as you're alluding to you have this multi-year period you know anywhere from five to ten to I mean if it's multi-generational and even farther out or and it really is this moment that you have to see with a, at least with a glimmer of hope while still being cognizant of no one wants permanent loss of capital. That's not, that's the ultimate risk that we want to avoid on the management side, permanent loss of capital. But there's a way to structure these strategies where it is a temporary loss and that you are able to increase positions of good companies and there are opportunities and temporary losses actually can often put you in a position to have even greater gains in the future. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, temporary losses and volatility, it, it is the price of making money over time. Um, you know, and, and it does remind me of a, a thing I read, I guess, Jeff, Jeff Bezos um, years ago with Buffett and said, you're the second richest person in the world. Yeah, but, but what you do is just, it's so simple and easy. How come people just don't copy it? And he said, because nobody wants to make money slowly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you know, and and probably what Bezos or nobody really realized at the time, or or, or at the time or now, was that you know Buffett himself, who's I don't know, believe he's worth 150 billion dollars, uh, and he's what 92, 93, something like that now. You're the um, one with the iPad. I do. Yeah, um, he wasn't a billionaire until 65, and and so and 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 his. His investing returns as a as a percentage, like what how he compounded money, was lower from sixty five to ninety three years of age. That's the power of compounding. That's the power of compounding. <laughs> so he compounded money. He he was a he, he had better performance on his way to a billion than after a billion. And here he is, you know, one hundred fifty billion dollars, and and that's kind of artificially low because every year it gives out what ten. Five to ten billion dollars to the Gates Foundation. So, um, yeah. So anyway, so just kind of like, kind of, especially us because we're so we're too close to it. Um, You know, we got to sort of widen our gaze, look back, look bigger picture, and hence the importance of weekends. Yeah, weekends, and and also (laughs) acknowledge that you know in this in this game in this sport (laughs) in this profession, you already have this blood sport. You're already going to have to assume that you're going to be wrong about a lot of stuff. A lot of things that you were betting on didn't pan out. Uh, talk about Twilio, right? Down fifty percent year date. You know, ultimately may not may not um, might be wrong on that, um, and and as well as a bunch of others. Um, but you know, that's markets. Um, most stocks end up crashing and dying anyway, and yet you see the markets keep going up and up over time. Why is that? Well, markets are very dependent on outliers, and so yeah, you have these stocks that maybe go down fifty percent. Uh, but then you have these other stocks that compound it, you know, twenty percent a year for ten years, and that's that's what that's you know triple quadruple, and so it more than makes up for any you know any losses, especially if you have more a higher weight or more money in the latter investment than the former. So so again, it's just um, where where we all uh, as people, but even as as people do this for a living. The mistakes we make are often because we're we're looking at just one thing, or we we forget the context. 
So again, part of the context is let's assume we're going to lose money on stuff. Okay, we don't, but but it's the bigger it's the bigger it's the overall that matters. The overall portfolio, right? Can't nitpick too many things. Hopefully, any individual losses or failures, there's something that we learn from it that actually ends up being very valuable later on to something that's making money. Um, but you know, but this is this is the you know this is the sport. It's it's not engineering. There's there's no there's no precision, right? Um, it, it's 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 a, it's a liberal art. It's a um, you know it's psychology. It's, it's a whole bunch of mental models working at once, and and hopefully we you know we all can do the things that first and foremost guarantee survival and guarantee you know people no matter what they're in a good place and you know approximately productive and 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 right about some things over time and and that you know and that's that's a win um and and there's always a, a smaller chance that you know we, we do these and we do these with a certain intensity and 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 get some luck and then they can be huge wins uh and you know i think that's um you know that's just that's the game and and um but anyway you know is is it's hard to be sort of sort of dour right now because it's it's just cuz the springtime for income oh uh, yeah cuz it's springtime for income and and um you know we we you know i mean with with all that's going on and again not just stocks we've all seen stock falls before none of us have really seen or very few of us i should say listening have ever seen a bond no i should say nobody has seen a bond market fall this much right bonds are supposed to go up in price when stocks are coming down we've got two kind of coming down simultaneously that won't last forever um and uh you know, and, and as investors and, and savers and people with excess capital who are therefore lenders, this is um, this is a time to actually really get excited because you're getting paid more and more for your money. Oh, I like the sound of that, Neil. Certainly much, much more rosy than if you're turning on the news or watching CNBC, that's for sure. Well, obviously, always a pleasure. And uh, make sure you do try and enjoy a bit of your weekend. And we'll, uh, we'll catch up soon. 